Well, has anybody in here ever been sailing before? Anybody ever been sailing on a sailboat? Nobody? A couple of you? A couple of you? There you go. All right. Um, I cannot recall a time where I ever was. Um, but I was reading a deal this week written by a captain of a sailboat. And he says, when you're caught up in stormy seas or, a, a, you know, a bad situation that, that you didn't expect, it's always good to be cautious, but it's even better to be calm and steady as you're going through the storm. You know, there's a book I've got sitting on my desk right now about a man just over 100 years ago who set out as an explorer to cross Antarctica. Uh, his name was Ernest Shackleton. Anybody ever heard of Ernest Shackleton? Uh, well, none of you are over 100 years old, so it doesn't surprise me. But he tried to cross Antarctica, and he had a, a ship, it was called the Endurance, and they were going to cross Antarctica and, and attempt this, this thing that had never been attempted before. And so they get down there uh, to this island that's just before Antarctica, and uh, it's so unique to see, especially in that book, it's got some maps, and you, know, you can see the, the, the bottoms of all the continents coming down there, Africa and South America, down there near uh, uh, Antarctica, and uh, they get on their ship, and they they're begin to go, and they're going to try to use their ship that's been reinforced to kind of push their way as much through the, the ice flow as they can, um, and they believe that because most of it's ice flow, that they can go almost the whole way using their ship. Well, pretty quickly, their, their ship gets stuck in the ice there in Antarctica, and it, it, it is rocked, and, and the, the ice is constantly shifting, and it's broken, and it's smashing against the hull of, of the ship. And uh, it's at eventually, you know, having the ship still being guided along where they're hoping it would go, the ice just kind of uh, uh, punctures the hull, and the men get as much stuff as they can off of the ship as it is just being repeatedly battered by the ice and sinks uh, below Antarctica. And they recently found it about five, ten years ago. They found his ship um, two miles under the ice in Antarctica, uh, about, I think it said 4,000 meters from where they marked that it went down. It had sunk and just slowly shifted, and they finally found the ship. But So there they are, Shackleton and his men, on the ice in Antarctica. This would be a good time to panic, right? I mean... Yeah, they don't have satellite phones. They don't have any way to contact anybody. People know they're down there, but they don't know what's going on. All they will know is when somebody finally makes it back or they've been gone long enough that people send some other people down there to try to find them. Uh, and so they're stuck now on the ice. But what all the records say from the records of all the men uh, that were on his, his crew as well as men who knew Shackleton was he was a man who was steady. He was a man that could not be shaken. And so there he is trying to lead his men into encouragement, into uh, a perseverance to get across the, this inhospitable land of Antarctica that no one's ever done before. And he stays steady. Day after day, they would sleep in their tents. They would get up. They would walk a little ways trying to drag their equipment as well as their boats, their uh, 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 lifeboats that they had taken off of their ship, they were dragging those or carrying those as well across Antarctica while trying to survive the whole time. 
trying to have enough food, trying to have enough water that they could make it the distance. But Shackleton's steadiness was so resolute that it provided a calmness among his men that no one would think possible so that during the day when they were at rest, not being able to cross anymore, they would have soccer games, playing soccer there on Antarctica, waiting for the weather to clear up or something to happen so they could get out and go. Eventually they made it. They made it to the other end, they dropped a boat in the water, and they sailed this, <laughs> I mean, you know, you've seen lifeboats in, you know, movies or whatever from 100 years ago. They're just, you know, they're open, they're not very uh, uh, secure, uh, but Shackleton hops in this deal with a couple of his men and sail 800 miles to the closest base to bring a rescue, a rescue crew back to rescue his men. And they made it all the way across all of this because he was steady as she goes, never going to be shaken for his own benefit, but also for the benefit of those he was leading. You see, when something happens, it's unexpected. When something happens, it's difficult. When a storm comes, whether physical or uh, uh, just a storm of this life, and how we respond to that storm can have incredible impact on how we live the rest of our lives, but on how everyone around us lives as well. And we're going to see this today in the life of particularly one guy. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. If you're using a Bible on the pew rack, it's on page 299. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you. Everybody should have a Bible, and if you don't have one, that Bible is yours. You can take it. We're going to be in 1 Kings starting in chapter 17, and we're going to move throughout this man's life. His name is Elijah. Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, now Ahab is the king of Israel, and he's a bad guy. Every time in Kings and Chronicles they would introduce a new king, uh, they would there would be one little sentence describing what kind of king he was before it went into details about what he did. And more often than not, it said this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What's interesting about Ahab, if you just, this isn't on the screen, but you can just go back uh, just a few verses to chapter 16, verse 30. It says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So never has there been a king as evil as this guy. He did all kinds of evil himself. He married a woman who did all kinds of evil herself. And they led the entire nation of Israel to do all kinds of evil. And so he's the king. And we get this guy, Elijah. Elijah's a prophet. What's so fascinating about Elijah is we know nothing about his backstory. This is the first introduction we have of him. He just shows up and he walks into the king. Now, a prophet would have special, you know, access to everybody. So not everybody could walk into the king, but the prophet could. So he just walks right into the king, and look at what he says. Because of everything the king's been doing, leading the people to evil, Elijah says, As the Lord lives, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, turn eastward, and hide yourself by the the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So Elijah walks into the king and says, there's not going to be any rain, there's not going to be any dew, there's going to be no water whatsoever. 
until I say. So he doesn't give him a time frame. He just says, because this is just the way it's going to be. And, and the implication is because you have been so evil and you've been leading the people to do so much sin, this is how it's going to be to try to wake you up. And then God speaks to Elijah and says, run and hide. And so he does. Elijah runs and hides. And what we find out over the rest of this chapter, he does a few miracles here and there. It's been three and a half years then since this moment where we're going to catch up at the beginning of chapter 18. He's been hiding for three and a half years. God's been hiding him. And Elijah's been focused on the Lord. He knows God sent him to say this word. I mean, you saw there what it said. This is the word of the Lord. This is what God says. So all about Elijah is all about God at this point. And then God hides him for three and a half years, takes care of him for three and a half years. Elijah is the most wanted man in the whole country for three and a half years. They've sent out search parties to try to find this guy. He gets the, the title from the king as the troubler of Israel because he's done this thing. Because the king doesn't blame God, the king blames Elijah. Because the king honestly doesn't even acknowledge God at all. And so Elijah's out there hiding. And then God finally comes to Elijah and says, all right, I want you to go find Ahab and I want you to challenge him. Basically challenge him to a spiritual duel. Because what the king has done in, in the midst of his evil is he has started worshiping this fake God called Baal. And he's been leading the nation to worship this God as well. He's been knocking down the altars of the one true God and building all new ones to this fake God, Baal. And he's been leading the people to do this. And so what God tells Elijah to do is go to Ahab and challenge him. You say, okay, Ahab, you bring, you know, your God and all your prophets for yet God and uh, we're going to go to this mountain over here and we're going to have a duel and whichever God shows up that's going to be the real God and we're going to worship him and uh, Ahab says fine we're going to go to Mount Carmel now it's not Mount Caramel which would be fun that's Willy Wonka this is Mount Carmel Mount Carmel uh, was what they believed this was the home base of Baal the God that they were worshiping this was his home base of operations, what they believed. And so Elijah says, we're going to go to Mount Carmel, and we're going to have the spiritual duel. And uh, uh, Ahab says, all right, fine. You're going to go to the base of operations of the God we're worshiping? Okay, whatever. And uh, Ahab shows up with 450 prophets of Baal, and Elijah is there by himself on Mount Carmel where they believe Baal lives. And they're going to do this thing. And this is going to be halfway through, or not halfway through, but we're going to jump down to verse 26 here in just a second of chapter 18, if you want to go ahead and look there. Uh, Elijah tells Ahab, okay, here's the ground rules for the spiritual duel. We're each going to build us an altar. We're each going to put wood on the altar. Your 450 prophets and me, myself, and I. And we're going to do this, and then we're going to take a bull. We're going to sacrifice it on the altar, but we're not going to light the altar. We're going to pray to our God, you guys to Baal, me to the one true God, and whichever God shoots fire out of the sky or lightning, that will be the one true God. And Ahab goes, all right, fine, whatever you crazy man, because they believe Baal was the storm God. They believe Baal controlled the lightning. And so Ahab's thinking, okay, we're here where my God lives, Baal, and you're asking me to, to do the one thing that my God is supposed to be able to do, shoot lightning out of the sky. Okay, fine, we're going to do it this way. Fine, okay. And so what Ahab does is he gathers his 450 prophets of Baal, and he's called together. He, sent, he has sent word out to the whole nation of Israel, show up to the mountain, and let's see how great Baal is. 
And so he sends word out. Whole nation shows up to the mountain. 450 prophets on one side. Uh, Elijah on the other side. Uh, the, the 450 prophets have built their altar. They got wood on top of the altar. They've sacrif- or they're going to pick their bull. Uh, and they've sacrificed it. And look at verse 26 of chapter 18. And they took the bull that was given them. And they prepared it. And called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And so from morning until noon, this is like, I mean, this is three, four hours that are going at this thing. Uh, they're doing their worship. They're, they're, they're praying to their God, Baal, their fake God, Baal. Nothing happens. Noon arrives, and things begin to shift. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So Elijah's kind of, this is like spiritual trash talk, all right? They're having this competition. They're supposed to be saying which God is better, and Elijah starts ragging on them as those 450 prophets are there, the king is there, the whole nation is there, and, and Elijah's kind of making fun of their God. And it's noon, so they've been at this two, three, four hours Uh, Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. That was part of their worship of Baal. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 p.m. They've been going, you know, six or seven hours. It says, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This has been going on. Elijah's sitting there, the king, the nation, 450 prophets doing their crazy stuff, start cutting themselves at about noon, do it for three hours, seven hours, five, you know, uh, six or seven hours have passed, and nothing has happened. And so Elijah says, okay, now it's my turn. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the, <clears throat> he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So This spot that Elijah chose to have this moment is a spot where an altar to God had been. But Ahab had sent goons to tear the thing down. And so it's there. Its it's ruins are there. The, the, The stones that have been used for the altar are still there. And Elijah, the first thing he does, he goes and he picks up all those stones. And one by one, he puts them in place and he fixes this, this altar. Knowing that all the people had been wanting Baal to answer, had been wanting something to happen because they'd been worshiping Baal for years now. Initially, what they had done is they had compared their experience with worship to the experience of other people who didn't worship God, and they wanted what those other people had because other people did all kinds of bad, nasty things in their worship, and they wanted to be a part of that. And so they started worshiping Baal in this this comparison deal, and comparing themselves to other people had led them down this path. And Elijah doesn't even acknowledge any of their presence in this moment. He just takes and he rebuilds this altar. Verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built the altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed, that's like seven-ish, eight, you know, eight quart, two gallons about of uh, uh, a moat around his altar. 
which is odd. You wouldn't normally do that, but he's got a purpose behind that. Verse 33, and he put wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So, I mean, I would love to know Elijah's personality. We know a little bit of it. I mean, he mocked them in their worship of their fake God. And then he, almost as a, a watch what my God can do, building this altar, prepares it with a moat, and then he has them pour water on the altar. Twelve jars worth of water. I, have you ever tried to light something like a campfire and it's soaked to the bone? It doesn't work. You can't light water. I don't know if you've ever tried to light water on fire. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't. Well, Elijah takes the water, has them take the water and pour it all over this. So, I mean, he doesn't do it. He has them do it. He wants them to, 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 to understand what's going on here. So there's no trickery. He says, you guys pour it on. So they soak this deal. So the bull is soaked, the wood is soaked, all of the stones are soaked, and, and it put, runs down and fills that moat he dug around this altar. And then look what he does. He doesn't go down and pray some big, opulent, crazy big word prayer. It's very simple what he does. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of oblation, so again, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Two simple sentences. God, he's basically saying, God, show these people that you're God. That's all he says. Remember, they had been going at it for six, seven hours. He just says one simple prayer, less than 30 seconds. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, have you ever been right next to lightning when it strikes? I remember my granddad told me a story. He was in a boat one time and lightning struck and he couldn't hear very well for the rest of his life because it struck right there. And uh, I can't imagine being right next to lightning when it strikes. But this lightning wasn't just something, we've had a tree out here on church property that got struck by lightning and you can see the scarred on the side of the tree. But this was more than any of that. Because this lightning was so powerful, this, this shooting down from the sky was so powerful that it obliterated everything that was there. The bull didn't just catch fire, it evaporated. And the wood and the stones. Have you ever seen something so powerful that it just makes stones disappear? And we're not talking about like little rocks like you see out on the playground area. We're talking I mean, like stones, like big old honking. It takes a whole deal to pick up and set down. It wiped it all out, and the water's gone. All this, the dust that was there, all this left is this massive crater. Just crater. All those people standing there, the 450 prophets of Baal, the king, and they're seeing this happen. What would be your gut reaction to that moment if you're standing on the side of the mountain? Like elbowing people behind you, trying to get, get away from this deal as fast as possible? I mean, this is, I mean, their eyes explode out of their heads as they see this. And look at what they did, verse 39. And when the people saw it, 
They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And an experience with the power of God, they could not help but acknowledge who he really was. Because it wasn't just, I mean, it says there, they, they saw it with their eyes, yes. But something that powerful, they'd feel it in their whole bodies. I mean, we're talking hairs standing up on ends and shaking of the ground. It's so powerful as it just takes all of this away. And they just collapse and say, he is God. Not the fake God we've been worshiping. The Lord is God. And Elijah turns to Ahab. Look at verse 41. And he says, go up and eat and drink, for there's the sound of rushing rain. He, he gave Ahab no indication that this moment was coming. It's been three and a half years since there's been rain, three and a half years since there's even been dew on the ground. They've seen no precipitation whatsoever in three and a half years. And God has just shown himself in this powerful, mighty way. The people acknowledge God's greatness. And Elijah says, now it's time for the rain to come. And he says, go up, have dinner. I can hear it coming. Ahab doesn't say, I don't really hear anything, crazy Elijah man. Look at what Ahab does, verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up on the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. So Elijah goes to base camp to party, or Ahab goes to base camp to party, pardon me. Elijah goes up on the mountain to pray. This is a very awkward position to pray in. I mean, he's bowing down, and he's hunched up in a ball with his face. I can't bend like that, but he's, his, his head is down, as, as low as it can go, because remember, he's, just, he's seen God show his power in this moment, just like everybody else did. And so he's in humility, humbling himself before the Lord, and he's praying for rain. Look at the next verse. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. Now, have you ever prayed for something and told somebody that God's going to do it before you even started praying? Like you said, a lot of us don't do that. Like if we pray for something that maybe is something exceptional that defies the laws of nature, we're not going to tell anybody about it because we kind of want to give God an out in case he doesn't do it, right? I mean, God must have had a different plan. But what Elijah does is before he even starts praying that God would send rain, he tells Ahab, rain's coming today. So get ready. You better be eat all the food you can because you're gonna, about to be on a journey and you're not going to make it if you don't eat now. And Elijah goes up and prays. And he tells his servant, go and look and see if you see any rain coming. Servant comes back and says, nothing there. Okay, well, I'm going to keep praying. You go look again. Servant runs up on the top of the mountain and he looks. I don't Clear skies? I mean, not even, I mean, maybe there was no cloud in the sky when the lightning shot down. So that was even more of a miracle in that moment. But I don't see anything. He comes back until there's nothing there. Runs up a third time. I mean, imagine being the servant. Like, you're certain, like, there's got to be something here. I don't want to go back down there and tell him there's nothing. Like, he just did the fire in the sky. What? I don't see anything. And he goes back down. Seven times he does this. And on that seventh trip up to the top to look out and try to see what he sees, Look at what he says. In the seventh time, verse 44, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And so on that seventh trip up, the servant looks out and says, There's a little, tiny, little something just way out there. I can't, 
it might be a cloud, it might be just some goop in my eye, I don't know, it's just, something's there, and he runs back down, and he tells, there's something out there, it's, you know, about yay big, but it's way out there, I can't really tell what it is, and Elijah says, all right, that's it, Next, look at the rest of that verse, he says, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you, and in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So the storm came like that. I remember a time we were playing out in the driveway, playing basketball, and we could hear rain, but we couldn't see it. And there's this little field out behind our house, and then there's some other houses beyond that. And we looked and we saw, it was, it was the craziest thing, I can still picture it in my head, it was a sheet of rain moving from those houses across the field towards, I mean, it was just like a wall of rain. And we grabbed the balls and we ran, and we didn't make it because it was coming fast. But I picture it like that, like Elijah says, it's coming, small cloud, that's the one I've been praying for. Again, if you're Elijah and you've been praying desperately for rain, you've already told the king the rain is coming and it's going to be massive, it's rushing rain, and your servant comes and tells you, I see a tiny, tiny cloud way out on the horizon. Are you thinking, well, I need to pray again. You go up number eight. Go up the eighth time and see if you see it. But Elijah doesn't do that. He says, you run and you tell the king he's got to book it because he's not going to make it. And he says, that's the rain. And the rain comes as it has never come in their lifetime. And they see God do this powerful, powerful thing from prayer. Elijah didn't give up praying when the servant kept coming back and saying there's nothing there. He didn't stop. He, 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 he prayed the full number of times. He prayed seven times and the rain came in a powerful way. He prayed with perseverance, which 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 tells us to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. That means pray always, pray at all times, but that also means never stop praying. Keep praying. Persevere in prayer. Even if you feel like you've prayed it over and over and over again and you haven't gotten the answer you wanted, even if it feels like you know you, you just can't pray it in any other way, you try different combination of words, like that maybe that'll unlock you know, God's you know, generosity as though magic words work that way, but that's not the way God works at all. But we're supposed to persevere in prayer. Jesus said uh, in Luke um, 17 or 18, he's giving a parable, and he says, we ought to never stop praying, ever. We ought to never give up in prayer. And that's what Elijah does. He continues to pray. So he has seen God do these powerful things. He saw God bring the fire from heaven. He saw God bring the rain. So fire and water, God did these amazing miracles. And the whole time, Elijah is giving God the credit. God's doing the, the, the lightning. That's why he prays a simple prayer. God brings the rain. That's why he keeps praying. And he tells Ahab, God's doing it. But then something happens to Elijah. And it's something that happens in just a moment. He's riding this high of seeing God do these great things, and he's giving God the credit the whole time. But then his eyesight, his spiritual eyesight shifts from the Lord. Look at the beginning of chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife. Y'all know any Jezebels? Y'all know anybody today named Jezebel? She ruined the name for everybody because she was a bad, bad person. 
Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of, the, one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel puts a hit on Elijah and says, I am going to kill you. So again, remember, he's already been the most wanted man in the whole country. He's the most wanted man again. Verse 3, then he was afraid. He wasn't afraid last time. He wasn't afraid before when he was on the run for three and a half years. Fear never entered his, his, his being at all. But now he's afraid. Look at what he does. He arose and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, the southernmost part of Israel, which is actually Judah, which belonged to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So this is the moment he's come to, seeing the fire, seeing the rain, Jezebel puts a hit on him, he's the most wanted man again, and he's afraid. And he runs for his life to the southernmost region, goes a, you know, leaves a servant there, goes a day's journey out by himself, and he sits down under a tree, and he asks God to kill him. He says, I'm done. I'm done. We did the fire, we did the rain, and the people won't turn back, God. What's the point? Just... Take my life. Take it. He's in the depths now. Whereas before he was on the highest of highs with the fire and, and the water, and now he's at the lowest of lows asking God to take his life. But God doesn't do that. God feeds him, and Elijah goes for another 40 days and 40 nights, and he comes to a cave. And look at what God says to him at that cave, verse 9. He came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. This is what he's saying. All these people are bad and I'm the only good one and I can't do anything. I'm out here all by myself. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrows. I don't know, have any of you ever felt that way? You don't have to raise your hand. I know you have. You feel like all your efforts, all your attempts are coming to nothing. Even if it's your own mistakes and you keep stumbling and you feel like, I just can't do enough. I can't be enough. And Elijah's saying, I tried all of this stuff, and they've done away with all of it. Even though, remember, just a few days before, the whole nation was declaring how great God was. It ended up being just the one negative voice of Jezebel that drove him to this point. And he says, I'm by myself. And he, he's not. But he's not thinking rationally. He's not thinking spiritually. Here, he's looking at his problem and not looking to the Lord. And so look at what happens. God speaks. Verse 11. 
And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. But before God came, look at what happened. A great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, picture, I mean, the sound of a mighty wind like a tornado, the sound of an earthquake, the sound of of an intense fire, and then all of a sudden the sound of a whisper. It's almost the, the image, have you ever been, you know, at a movie and it's really, really loud and then all the sound cuts out. It's almost like you can hear the silence. And that's what's going on. It's all that sound of the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And then it's like somebody's just whispering just outside the cave. And so Elijah goes out of the cave to listen. And God says, why are you here? And so Elijah repeats his complaint. Verse 14. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, I want you, we're going to read God's answer to him. In Elijah's complaint, it's all focused on him and his perception of his problem. And when God tells him what's next, God doesn't address what he's saying here at all until the end. Look at what he says first. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. So what God does is, is, is God gives Elijah a job. He says, I'm not going to take your life because I've still got something for you to do. You're not done yet. you still got a task. you still got people to point in my direction. So I need you to go out and do this thing. Elijah, I created you for a purpose to accomplish something. Go out and accomplish the thing that I made you to do. And so he gives him this assignment. You anoint this guy king, you anoint this guy king, and you anoint this guy who's going to replace you. And as an aside, down to verse 18, you know, Elijah complained, felt like he was the only prophet, and God says, you're not the only one worshiping me. I've got 7,000 other people who are worshiping me. So I don't even think you're by yourself. But how did Elijah get here? You know, it's almost like Elijah's like, like Peter, walking on water. He took his eyes off of the Lord and he sank. During the fire from the sky and and, and the massive rain, Elijah's attention was all about God. God did it. God's going to do it. God's going to make it possible. But then when the threat comes from Jezebel, it's all about himself and how worried he is about himself. Because it's not like he hasn't been the most wanted man in the country before. He was for three and a half years. And God protected him and God provided for him and God looked out for him every single day during that three and a half years. But here he is again. 
in the same situation as before, but he's not leaning on the Lord's protection or the Lord's provision at all. He's walking through the the valley of the shadow of death with his eyes only on the shadows of death and not on the God who's going to walk him through it. And in reality, the only way he can make it through his low here is in the same way he made it through the high, the mountaintop before, and that's with the Lord. He's not going to be able to make it through this low if he's not looking to the Lord. He's not going to be able to make it through just one step after one step and perseverance, no matter how hard it gets and how how difficult the slog is. He, He has to look to the Lord just like he did before when everything was good and everything was great, even though it wasn't really that great. Remember, he was a wanted man. But when he was looking to the Lord, he found provision, and he found necessity. And honestly, he found miracles, if you go back and read chapter 17. He found the Lord with him at every step of the way. He found peace. He found steadiness. In Isaiah chapter 26, it says, speaking to God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That when we trust in the Lord, we find peace. We find steadiness, we find strength that can help us endure both the high time and the low time. That doesn't mean we don't also need other kinds of help in those moments. We absolutely do. That's why God's given us other people to help journey with us. But if we don't look to him as well, then we're just wandering aimlessly through the darkness. And here is Elijah needing the Lord in the moment. The Lord provided, the Lord came to him. In Isaiah, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And if we continually look to the Lord, then there will never be anything that is too big, too much, too overwhelming, too powerful because he's walking through it with us. The storm will never be too much if we've got the Lord. There will not be any fear in the storm because we've got the Lord. Makes me think of that time as a kid. We lived in Cleburne, Texas. Anybody know Cleburne, Texas? A couple of you. Little tiny town just south. Of, it's not as tiny now as it used to be. Now they've got a chili, so they're a big deal. But they didn't back then. Uh, uh, little tiny town, and uh, I can rem- And we, the thing about Cleburne is, we had tornadoes all the time, all the time. Uh, many of my memories as a kid were in the hallway with my mom and my sister in a mattress. Uh, Dad wasn't there with us because he was standing on the front porch watching. Uh, but that's what makes me think of that is I can, I can think of, of Dad not having any fear standing out watching the tornadoes as they blew through, as they popped out our windows in our garage and everything. No fear whatsoever of the tornado. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when we walk through the lowest of the low, if our eyes are on Jesus, then the size of the storm doesn't matter. Because in reality, it's all about comparison. You see, that's where Elijah's problem arose. You see, when we see our problem and we begin to compare our, the size of our problem to ourselves, it's going to crush us every time. And when we begin to compare Uh, Other people and how we perceive other people are handling their problems, we compare them to us, it's going to poison us. Poison us with jealousy, poison us with envy, poison us with bitterness. But when we begin to compare our problem 
to the size of our God, it gives us strength that we never knew was possible. So comparison isn't always bad, but it's about what you are comparing. Uh, comparing what you are comparing. If you compare yourself to your problem, you're crushed. If you compare yourself to other people, you're poisoned. But if you compare your problem to the Lord, you're empowered. Elijah, standing on the mountain, there was massive problems. But his eyes were singularly on the Lord. And he saw fire. He saw rain. He saw miracles. He was never frightened for three and a half years. But he took his eyes off of the Lord and he looked at Jezebel in her words. Her words of condemnation. And he began to compare that problem to how he felt alone. And he was crushed. And he began to be in the lowest place that he's ever been, asking the Lord to take his life. And he needed the Lord to come along and say, you're not done. You need to stop looking over there, stop looking at the problem, and get your eyes back on me. And only then will you find steady footing or a steady boat in stormy seas. Or yeah, a better way to say that, I mean, all S's, right? I'm a preacher, so alliteration's good. A steady ship in stormy seas. I think on your bulletin and on the, on the screen it says boat, but a ship would be better. A steady ship, so cross it out and write ship. A steady ship in stormy seas comes from solid sight. A steady ship in stormy seas comes from solid sight. Sight that is solid. solid uh, sight that is not wavering. Sight that is singular and on the one we need, Jesus. Because you are only steady as is your sight. If your sight is not steady, then you're going to fall. If your sight is not steady, you're going to falter and you're going to be poisoned and you're going to be crushed and life's beating is just going to have its way with you. But if your sight is steady and you keep your eyes on Jesus, then the size of the problem never matters because Jesus is always bigger. Jesus is always greater than whatever comes your way. But we need to keep that sight even when things are going great and we feel like we're on the highest of highs and we're on the mountaintop, not just when we're in the valley because the threat is just as real when we're on the mountaintop. Pride can destroy anybody just as much as discouragement can, if not more so. Pride is what pulled Satan down from his position. Pride is what Satan leaned into when he tempted Adam and Eve. Pride kills. And so we need to keep our eyes on the Lord when we're at the high. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord when we're at the low. And only in that can we be brought through this life. Because God is greater than your highs and your lows. God is greater than the moment you're experiencing. God is greater than all of it. And so looking to him will bring us through it, no matter where we find ourselves. So whether you are experiencing all greatness right now or whether you're walking through a storm right now, I don't know your life. I can see some of you and, and know some of you, but I don't know what's going on inside I mean, you could, from an external perspective, be feeling great, and everybody thinks everything's hunky-dory and fine, but inside, it's turmoil, and you feel like Elijah, Elijah under the broom tree. But God's not done with you yet. 
He's still got something for you to do. If he didn't, you wouldn't be here. He's still got something for you to do. So we need to readjust our sight lines and look back to the Lord because the enemy is going to try to keep us distracted and keep our eyes away from Jesus. And he's going to bring everything in our lives to try to keep us away from where he needs us to be. Because if he can keep us distracted, then we're not looking to the Lord, then we're not doing what God wants us to do, then we're not accomplishing what God would have us accomplish and not fulfilling his purpose in our lives. So will you look to the Lord? Will you find steadiness in the storm? Do you want to be steady in the storm? The only way to do that is with Jesus. And if you have him, you just got to turn to him and look to him. I mean, look at Jonah, right? He's in the belly of the fish. God was there with him the whole time. All he had to do was turn to the Lord in the fish because God was already there. God's with you. Whatever storm you're in, he's there. You say, you don't know, preacher, man. I've walked so far away and done this other thing, and you don't know what I was doing last night or even this morning before I came into church, the things that came out of my mouth, the things that went into my mouth. You don't even know. I don't. But he does. And you're still here because he's not done with you yet. I was listening to a song this, this morning. It's His Mercy is More. You say, you don't know what I've done. His mercy's more. You don't know the pile of stuff that I continually fail and stumble and do and the temptations that are pulled at me. Maybe it's pride or maybe it's the low place. Like Elijah, maybe I'm in the moment and I, I don't believe God can do it. His mercy is more than anything you can do if you just come to him. Come to him, free of charge. I read that a couple days ago in my devotion. I believe it's, it was in Habakkuk chapter 4. I know we've all memorized Habakkuk chapter 4. Uh, but his, it's free if we come to him. Will you come to Jesus today? Whether for the first time and believe that he is the son of God, died so all your sins would be forgiven. And he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Or maybe you need to come to him for the thousandth time. And say, I know Jesus, I keep getting my eyes off of you. Keep looking at my problem, keep looking at these other people, and, and I am crushed, and I feel poisoned, and I need you to suck the poison out of me. And I'll get my eyes back on you and find the strength to walk where you've got me to walk. Will you turn to Jesus today?